in just a moment, we'll read verses 12 to 18. It is not an uncommon thing to hear uh, a physical trainer say something like, no pain, no gain. They teach people to lift weights and do cardio so they can get into shape, but it's but it's going to come with soreness, you know. I mean, when you lift weights, for example, there are these little micro tears and fibers that happen, and thus you are sore afterwards. But it is through the rest and the recovery that that pain ends up being gain, a gain in strength. And how you see this pain is important. If your goal in life is to avoid being sore, you'll never work out. You'll never get the gain if you do everything you can to avoid the pain. Nobody likes pain, I assume. If you do, please talk to me afterwards. I'd like to know how this works. Nobody likes pain. Nobody likes the soreness. But without it, you don't get stronger. And in the Christian life, spiritual growth is actually much the same way, not because we enter into the pain, but the pain comes on us very often. And it is through this pain that God actually creates gain in our spiritual lives. One of the, the tools that God uses to grow us as Christians, one of the tools in His hand to shape us, to chisel away what needs to go, is pain, trials, tribulation, suffering. About ten years ago, uh, Kelly Clarkson came out with a uh, song called Stronger. Any of you guys remember that song? says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? It's actually, I mean, this phrase became quite, is quite popular among people. It actually originates from the German philosopher and atheist Friedrich Nietzsche uh, to talk about human resilience. The fact of the matter is, is while the song may be catchy and we like to say that, the fact is what, do, what doesn't kill you doesn't necessarily make you stronger. What doesn't kill you could just maim you. It could put you on your back. It could leave you incapacitated. It doesn't automatically mean you're going to be stronger just because something doesn't kill you. And in the Christian life, it's important to know that suffering doesn't automatically produce spiritual growth. If that were the case, none of us would ever have the problem of staying immature, would we? None of us would ever have that problem. If, if, if trials automatically drew people to God, in fact, there'd be no unbelievers in the world. Because it would just be like a big magnet, like one of those, you know, Looney Tunes magnets, right? That is humongous and grabs everything. Suffering is not like that. Suffering in, ends up in the hands of God producing growth depending on how, by the power of the Spirit, we see it and respond to it. That's where the growth comes. It's not just in the fact that suffering happens. It's how we see it that matters. And that truth is illustrated in this week's text. Paul sees the pain of opposition and the pain of division through eyes of faith. So that in his trial, Paul sees and celebrates God's work. And we should follow that example. So that's actually our main takeaway, that in suffering, Christians should see and celebrate God's work. Let's read it together. Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18. If you are 
using a pew Bible and haven't quite found it yet. It's on page 980 of that Bible. Within chapter 1, the big number, just look for the little 12 under the heading, The Advance of the Gospel. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that you have spoken these words for us through your Apostle Paul that by the power of your Spirit, we have your true, unchanging words, words that will never lead us astray, words that show us who you are, who we are, who our Savior is, shows us what life will be like and how we ought to respond to it. And so we pray now that your Spirit will be at work among us, that through my words, your Word will be proclaimed. And that we will all hear it and heed it for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. In suffering, Christians must see and celebrate God's work. That's the point. First, we'll notice that Paul suffers. Paul suffers. When Paul writes in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, what, that what has happened to me. When he says, what has happened to me, he's actually referring to a long list of events. A lot has actually happened to the Apostle Paul. He doesn't go into details, most likely because they already know. So if, you were to, if a friend of mine says to me, you know, uh, I want you to know that everything that happened in 2020, when he uses that phrase, everything that happened in 2020, if I just use that phrase, doesn't your mind begin to fill up with things, things that happened in 2020? Well, that's the same kind of thing. That's how we talk to one another. You don't have to repeat everything. I don't have to go back to January of 2020 and work you through the whole year. All I have to say is all the things that happened in 2020, and you just call it to mind. Same thing here. But we do want to fill in for our sake, because it may not be as immediately accessible all that's been, all that Paul's gone through. To do that, we have to think about what happened in the book of Acts, and then Paul actually recaps some of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're not going to read it. It would be wonderful to read, beginning in, verse, in chapter 9 of Acts, uh, to read chapter 9 and then to skip forward to chapter 13 and just read and just hear what exactly happened in detail. So I'm just going to summarize. He's faced angry mobs. 
He faced threats of violence. He faced actual violence. He, five times he's been whipped. Three times he's been beaten with rods. One time he was stoned and left for dead. According to his own testimony, he was shipwrecked three times. He was confronted with false accusations. He's the object of a secret conspiracy to be assassinated, only saved because his nephew happened to find out about it. Some years he was in prison more than he was out of it. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says he was in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And now he's in prison. This is not a minimum security prison. He is in chains. He's chained to whichever guard happens to be on duty at that time. And all this suffering is because of his faith. As a Christian, he's an apostle preaching the message of Jesus Christ, the fact that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, that the only way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And we preach that same message today, but in that day, the Jews in particular were furious about this and stirred up problems for Paul because of it. The world around him won't stand it, just as Jesus said in John 15, that that he was actually hated first. Remember that? He He says, the world will hate you because it hated me first. If the world loves you, you don't actually belong to me. But if the world hates you, take solace in this, it hated me first. And So now he hate. not only does the world hate Jesus, the world hates all who proclaim Jesus. And that includes us. Just this week, a pastor in Alberta, Canada, was arrested and jailed for holding church services that apparently violated health orders related to COVID-19. And the reasoning was that arresting him and shutting it down was to protect public health. Now, whatever you may think of such defiance, the fact is, is that arresting a pastor like this for something like this sets a dangerous precedent moving into the future because it is not beyond the realm of possibility that at some point government officials will begin to think, well, in order to protect the public mental health and well-being, we need to silence some of this preaching. Because these are lifestyles and choices not only that we tolerate, but we celebrate them as a culture. And here is a group of our citizens not celebrating what we all ought to be celebrating. And so it's not going to be... I don't know that it's out of the realm of possibility. I'm not a a, a naysayer. I have no date on this. But I'm just not going to be surprised if before... I retire from this pulpit, the preachers in, America, in the United States are, 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 that the government officials are seeking to restrain preachers in the United States, and if they will not restrain themselves, they will be restrained by something outside of them. I'm just not going to be surprised. Peter tells us that, right? Don't be surprised. Don't, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when fiery trials come. 
Don't be surprised when they haul you off. I'm actually interested to know if that church met today with their pastor in prison. I'm sure somebody will tweet about it soon and I'll be able to see it. I won't have to go looking for it. But there's more to Paul's suffering actually than just suffering the opposition of the world which has landed him in prison. He's actually suffering from those inside the faith as well. Did you notice that? Look at verses 15 to 17. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, you have to look at this very carefully because Paul is not saying that these men are false teachers. Did you notice that? They're not preaching another gospel, which is really no gospel. He says they preach Christ. Paul doesn't just throw around language like that. He's not loose with his vocabulary. He says that because these men are preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But their motives aren't pure. They're not sincere. They want to hurt Paul through as they preach the gospel. As if imprisonment isn't enough. They want to afflict him while he's in prison. They want to pour salt in his wounds. They'd like to take a knife and just stick it in his back and twist it while they're at it. Oh, they preach Christ. But they do it, you see, he says, from envy. From envy. This is the same reason the Jews wanted Jesus dead. Do you remember that? They saw the crowds following Jesus and they hated it. Likewise, these preachers see how many followers Paul has on Twitter, how many views there are of his YouTube sermons. And they are outraged because they want the crowds. They also preach from rivalry. In other words, they preach to pick a fight. You ever heard preaching like that? Preaching that picks a fight with whoever happens to be out there? Just pick a target and go at them? So that while they're preaching the truth about Jesus, they talk about how Paul's really hurting the cause of the gospel, going and getting himself thrown in prison like this. I mean, he'd be much more effective if he would stay out of trouble like I have. And they also preach from selfish ambition. They want Paul. You know, uh, John the Baptist says uh, of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And these men are saying of the Apostle Paul, he must decrease and I must increase. That's what they're saying. And today, friends, it's not uncommon for for pastors of small congregations. To some people, we're a ginormous congregation because they're used to meeting with 20 people. And to some, we're a blip on the map because they meet with 2,000 people, right? But it's not uncommon for people, for, for pastors in particular in smaller congregations to see the crowds, the influence of pastors with larger congregations, and the same kinds of impure motives can just stir in the heart. 
So that it's not just the world that hates us, it's all these mega churches that are problems too. How can you really be faithful with all those people in there? Or just a teacher within any church because they saw either a Sunday school teacher just long so much for an office, a role, a title, influence that he or she can teach the Bible in such a and, and while they're doing it, take aim at the leaders. Well, I wouldn't have done it this way. Just that off these little comments. It's these divisive things that Paul is facing. He's facing oppression from the outside and he's experiencing the pains of division on the inside. But the second thing to notice is that Paul sees God's work. He doesn't just suffer. He sees God's work. As Paul thinks about the suffering, the mental anguish, the physical pain, the heartache, he can't help but see God at work. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You see, God's not at work in spite of Paul's suffering. Paul's suffering is God's tool for building the kingdom. Did you hear that? The key word is really. All that has happened to me is really advancing the gospel. It's, it's, it's an adversive word in, in, in the Greek. It means rather or instead. It seems like everything's going poorly because of what's happening to me, but instead, do you know what's really happening? God is advancing the gospel. That's what he's saying. And this kind of perspective isn't actually new with Paul. This is the way that God works. Opposition and persecution appears to thrive, but what's really happening is that God's at work. If you just think back to one of the Sunday school stories, many of you may be familiar with, to Joseph and his coat. You remember Joseph? Joseph's brothers are jealous of him. So they throw him in a pit first, and then they pull him out so they can sell him into slavery. And that just begins an unfolding of suffering. He's forgotten. He's falsely accused. And in the end, when Joseph is reunited with his brothers, after all of this, at the same time that he was suffering, God was slowly moving him into position, into an influential position there in Egypt. And do you know what he says at the end? Genesis 50, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What is the it? The it is the evil that they meant against him. It's all of this that's happened to him. At the same time that their motives were evil in all of the same circumstantial unfolding, Joseph says, God meant it for good. To do what? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, if Joseph and Paul were sitting in the cell together... Paul would say, well, all that's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And Joseph would look back at him and say, yeah, I know where you've been. Because all that happened to me advanced God's purposes too. And people were saved because of it. People didn't die. My family was preserved. And you're here in this prison preaching Jesus because God first preserved me and did it for good way back when. Now, we don't tend to think this way, do we? We don't tend to think this way about suffering. This is not a natural way 
to think about suffering in our lives. Some tend to think that the church needs a privileged position in order to thrive. And so the fight isn't to stay faithful. The fight is to get people in authority to give us freedoms. I'm not saying there's not a place for those kinds of conversations, but in the end, oh, may all who come behind us find us free? No. May all who come behind us find us faithful. That's the fight. That's the fight that matters, to be faithful. Even if you just look in the book of Acts, the advance of the gospel comes in the midst of fierce opposition, doesn't it? The apostles are jailed and beaten. What happens? The word grows and spreads. Persecution breaks out in Jerusalem and pushes these Christians out. What happens? The gospel goes with them. And they preach the gospel wherever they go. And a man named Philip meets an Ethiopian eunuch. And the mission to the world is seen in preview right there. Why? Because in the refining process, fire makes gold shine brighter. So God uses the fire of oppression, of opposition, to refine the church and to make her shine brighter in a dark world. This is what happens. Our faith is refined and our light shines. So we may not pray for suffering to show up at our door. We just need to know that when it does, God's purposes have shown up with it. And God's purposes will overshadow and outlast any opposition we face. And we hang on to that. And we see it. In Philippians, Paul is suffering here, but he sees what's really going on. He's in prison, but the gospel isn't. He said much the same to Timothy in his second letter to him. He says, I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Isn't that good news? No matter what binds the missionary, no matter what binds a pastor, no matter what binds a Christian from a legal perspective, the gospel is not bound. Throughout Paul's suffering, you see, there's a common thread that at every turn as he faces opposition, if he can just hold his head up, I mean, he's beaten and he's left for dead and he's dragging away. Can you just see him dragging away? He's got cuts all over him. Roman soldiers are having to help him. And then he says, can I just say one thing before we go? And then he preaches the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it glorious? And now here he is with the imperial guard, and it's likely none of these men would have come to any hall where Paul was preaching. It's not likely that they would have seen a flyer up for an evangelistic rally and thought, you know, when I get off work, I'm going there. So what does God do in order to get the gospel to the imperial guard? He goes, he moves heaven and earth to get the apostle Paul chained to them. Because Paul won't shut up about Jesus. 
The soldiers keep hearing of this Jew who lives who lived on the other side of the Mediterranean, who was crucified by fellow soldiers, Roman soldiers. And if Paul's right, he was raised from the dead. Paul won't stop singing about this Jesus. Paul won't stop speaking about this Jesus. He encourages all of his visitors to keep following this Jesus. And it keeps happening and happening to the point that the imperial guard, which would number about 9,000 people, all these guys have heard of it. Not because they've taken their turn, they've all taken a turn chained to Paul, but his reputation and his message just keep reverberating out. I mean, you just imagine them in the mess hall and as they're eating... They're talking about this prisoner who's not like any of the other prisoners. He's not trying to bribe us. He's not trying to get us to make a deal with him. He's not even begging for his life. He seems to be begging for our lives. He seems to be telling us that our lives are actually in jeopardy, that we need to think about who this Jesus is. So verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Mine are tears, mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on the narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for the battle, strong enough to last the war. And Christ has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. That's what we sang this morning. That's the kind of truth that would be resounding in Paul's heart. One with Christ. Because it's actually not for Christ in the original, it's in Christ. It's that great phrase that Paul uses over and over and over again to talk about his union with Christ. Later, he's going to talk about the fact that he shares in Christ's suffering and he sees his imprisonment as one of those ways that he does so. But not only does Paul, not only is God at work in those non believers. God is at work in the Christians. Verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, because of all that's happened to Paul, because of his endurance and faithfulness, the Christians who've heard are more bold. They're less fearful in sharing the gospel. Even these guys who have impure motives, they're likely more confident to preach because of Paul. And what does Paul see when he looks at them? Well, surely he sees what's wrong. He names it. I don't think if they were having coffee, he'd be afraid to bring it up to them and say, why exactly are you doing this? But what is, where is his focus here? Verse 18. Christ is proclaimed. Some preach Christ from envy. And then in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. You know how, did you notice how he focuses on what they're accomplishing in God's work and not just what they're doing to hurt him? He doesn't even refer to them without talking about the fact that they keep preaching Christ. They proclaim Christ. They do it in impure motives. They're trying to hurt me. They're trying to rub my chains into my wrists, but, but they preach Christ. That's what he sees. 
You see, Paul doesn't look into the mirror of self-pity. He doesn't want the Philippians to meet him at Starbucks so that he can vent all of his problems. I mean, go back to verse 12. Imagine how this sentence might have been written if that were his motive. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what? I mean, if all he wanted to do was complain, he could have said, well, all that's happened to me has been painful, the chains constrict, the cell is damp, the food is bad, I'm alone, I've experienced injustice and betrayal, and he could just go on and on because all of that is true. But Paul will not look into the mirror of self-pity as he suffers. Instead, he looks through the lens of God's purposes. Now, one of the glories of growing up when I grew up was that there were prizes in cereal boxes. I mean, think about this. You get a reward for eating a box full of sugar. Did that reinforce bad habits? Probably. But one of these one of these prizes, you'd get a cereal box, and the whole back would just be kind of a, a, a one-colored, you know, monochromatic nothing. It does, you can't see anything in there. But if you eat all the sugar, you get the little magnifying glass-looking thing, right? And then you can put the magnifying glass on top of the garbled mess on the back of the cereal box, and you can read a story about the toucan and all that he did. But if you don't have the lens, all you're going to see is a garbled mess. You see, when we, walk through, when we walk through suffering, doesn't it just become a garbled mess? Can't it just be a big garbled mess where one thing after another, everything is in a different shade of suffering and you can't, you're not seeing straight? But when we take the lens of God's purposes and of His Word and we look through it to our suffering... Then we actually see in the midst of the garbled mess, there's hope. He's doing something. He's still good. He's still faithful. He's still wise. He's still great. He's still working. That's what Paul's doing. He sees his suffering through the lens of God's purposes. And in doing so, out of the garbled mess emerges the glorious work God is doing. I wonder how you see your suffering, especially in those times in life when it doesn't seem like it's ever going to let up, when it's been weeks or months or years with ongoing pain in your body, ongoing pain in your relationships, betrayal by friends or a spouse, a deep sense of being alone. How do you see it? You see, the tendency of the flesh is just to look at the garbled mess and just wallow in the garbled mess and only talk about how life's a big garbled mess. But friend, we need the lens of God's purposes to see with eyes of faith. When we and when we can't, we need to pray that God will open the eyes of our hearts so that we'll see our suffering the right way, to see how it will expose my heart and my unbelief and my sin, to see where God's giving me opportunities to serve Him, to grow, to bless others. Paul looks at his life marked by suffering and sees God's work. The last thing, though, he doesn't just see it. Thirdly, Paul celebrates God's work. 
he's not just resigned to put up with suffering, to endure it begrudgingly because after all, at least God's doing something through it. No, he rejoices as he suffers because God is at work. Look at, look, look at verse 18. What then? Bringing everything to this conclusion in these two paragraphs. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. In every way, in His chains, through men with impure motives, through those who preach out of love for Jesus and love for Him and goodwill toward Him, through those who preach Christ truthfully, but for their own sake, to build their own platform, to expand their own influence, to hurt Him. What matters most is that in every way, Christ is proclaimed, that the, world goes to the, that the Word goes to the world, that the good news of the gospel echoes from every pulpit that He knows of around in Rome, sincere or not. And so Paul says, I rejoice currently, right now, in this cell, with chains on my hands, scars on my body, and a target on my back, I rejoice. But he doesn't stop there. He says, yes, and I will rejoice in the future, no matter what comes. My joy is in Christ and in His work, and it will not diminish. Jesus told His disciples that He would give them a joy that the world could not take away. Friends, we could give it away, but it cannot be taken. This kind of rejoicing is instinctive, but it's not an instinct just for like the higher life type people, just for the upper echelon of Christians. This is, this is actually the kind of instinct that you develop, like, like when you learn to drive a car. Do you remember learning to drive a car? Do you remember how you thought about every single thing that was going on? Or my, because I learned on a, on a manual transmission, so I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the, 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 the clutch, and I'm thinking about the gears, and I'm thinking about where my hands are, and checking my mirrors, and looking out there, and am I going to hit every mailbox that I'm driving past? I felt that way for a long time, that I was way too close to the mailboxes on the right. Fortunately, I never was. I mean, I never hit one. But you think about every single thing. And do you know I got in my car this morning and I drove here and I didn't think about any of that. Why? Because God has given us an incredible capacity for habit. We can develop instincts. We develop instincts. Rejoicing in seeing God's work in the midst of suffering is an instinct we have to develop. We develop it by seeing in the Scriptures who God is and what He does through these things. We develop it by not listening to ourselves in the midst of suffering, but speaking to ourselves. Speaking to ourselves to rejoice. Rejoice because of this. Rejoice in who God is. Rejoice that He is wiser than you are. Rejoice that, that this would all be hopeless if it weren't for Him. Rejoice that our hope is not in this circumstance or even in a better circumstance in this life. Rejoice that our hope is unshaken and will never move. It is in heaven and we will get there. And you have to, we have to discipline ourselves in order that 
at some point it becomes instinctive that our eyes are automatically looking for what God is going to do, and we rejoice in that. But it's not just going to happen. You have to discipline yourself to think that way every single time. And the first time, let me tell you something, the first time you start to discipline yourself, it's like the first week at the gym, right? You're like launching out. You're like, all right. At the end of the first week, you're like, I'm not sure I'm going back to that place. This is ridiculous. But if you will keep going, if you will keep disciplining yourself, you will be able to do what Paul is going to later command us to do. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Because no matter who it was or what it is that is meant for evil, God has good purposes. Paul suffers, he sees God's work, and he celebrates God's work. And we should do the same. In suffering, Christians should see and celebrate God's work. It's so relevant for us today, isn't it? We live in a culture of complaining. All you have to do is go out to eat. And if something goes wrong with your meal, just listen to what the waitress says. The waitress complains about this or that that went wrong and this went wrong and that went wrong. It's definitely not my fault. It's them and that and this and those. We just live, it just, it's pervasive. It's within the church. We need to recommit ourselves to being trained to see and celebrate God's work in the midst of suffering. You see, while Paul is a great example, the perfect example of this is actually the Lord Jesus. He suffered. He was beaten and whipped and mocked and falsely accused and killed. But even more than the physical suffering, Jesus suffered under the wrath of God the Father, not for his own sin, but for ours. The very reason Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh was to take our place, to suffer in our place. And throughout his life, Jesus saw God's work. Not just as it happened, as it unfolded, but before it ever happened, he knew what was coming. He knew where he was going. He told his disciples multiple times things like what he says in Mark 10. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He saw God's work. He suffered. He saw that it was God's work that through the evil that was poured out on Jesus by human beings, God at the very same time through the very same circumstances was working good not only, Philippians 2, to exalt Jesus to a place where his name is above every name, but that the entire world would know that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. Aren't you glad Jesus suffered? Aren't you thankful? The fact is, he wouldn't trade any of it. He does not now from heaven say, I wish I hadn't gone through that. Because you know what else he does? He celebrates God's work. Hebrews 12 says it was for the joy that was set before him that Christ endured the cross and despised its shame. The joy of glorifying his Father. The joy of doing God's work. 
the joy of bringing salvation to the world, which includes the joy of rescuing us, all for the glory of God. Oh my, what a work that was. And now, any and all who will turn to him in faith will be saved. Because Jesus suffered and because Jesus accomplished God's work, you see, we can actually receive joy. The joy of being forgiven. The joy of being right with God. Friend, if you have not turned to Jesus and found that joy, there's nothing I'd love more than to talk to you about it. Nothing. Joy unspeakable in Jesus. And so we go from here to lives in which we will suffer. But will you discipline yourself to see and celebrate what God is doing in the midst of your life? Let's pray together. Father, how good it is to know that in the midst of of the darkest days in this life, that nothing has changed about who you are, that you have not lost control of our lives or of this universe for even a split second, that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and for your glory, that nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus, that nothing can pluck us from your hand. Because on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Lord, I pray you will give us grace that as we suffer to discipline ourselves to see and celebrate your work. Help us by your Holy Spirit, for we cannot do this on our own. And as we do that, as we see your work through our suffering, as we celebrate your work through our suffering... We pray it will all resound for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.